Welcome listeners to Creators and COVID, a podcast where I talk to creatives about their experiences coping with the coronavirus pandemic. Whether you started a new business and made something incredible or barely managed to survive with your sanity, we want to normalize those stories and create an archive so that the future can look back at our experiences and learn about the many forms coping and surviving take on in a global crisis. The lockdowns were a bore for some, a boon to others, and an outright struggle for so many more. But there was one group that we must discuss today. These creators took to the streets using their craft to expose the injustice as it happened after George Floyd was murdered. Liv Monahan, journalist, activist, and mom, was among this group. But she took things a step further. Liv covered her Mexican melanin with long sleeves, with long pants, and wide masks that covered most of her face and the tattoos. The rest hid under the brim of a trucker's cap. With this disguise, she infiltrated the ranks of white supremacists who also protested in her city of Sacramento. Liv and others exposed the sabotage to Black Lives Matter protests. She revealed the racist entitlement behind the mask uprisings and did so much more for the movements happening around the world that year. This work was vital in exposing the people hell-bent on sabotaging everything that BLM sought to build up. The exposure brought even more light to the insidious nature of racism at work all around the world. But every warrior returns from battle with some kind of scars. Not all of them are physical, and they certainly don't heal the moment the protests are over. Liv did not escape the work unscathed. The scars were compounded with a mental toll from all of her personal losses to police violence and even more lives lost to COVID. So what happens when you fought the good fight but still cannot seem to reconcile how little the world cares? We will discuss that today in Creators and COVID, Episode 7. Well, I am a journalist in Sacramento, um, which is what I was doing before the pandemic started and um, has has been what I've been doing continually since the pandemic started. Um, and I tend to focus my attentions as much as I can when it comes to the writing on different perspectives of stories that are constantly in the news, but we don't always hear different sides of them, um, either because the people who are reporting the news aren't actually a part of the community or the process um, that the story takes place in, um, or because of an inherent bias due to systemic oppression that is part of the media's foundation. Um, a lot of stories are told, I don't want to say incorrectly, but incompletely. Um, and I try to look at the same story that other people are looking at and see something that maybe they didn't. So when it comes to anything, whether it's the uprisings that we had in the last year um, during the George Floyd protests, or whether it's the uprising that we watched at the Capitol or anything else in between, I just try to find different perspectives from different community people, different leaders, different stories that, um, people don't always want to focus on. So that's my job at this point. Yeah. And it, it got real, it got really interesting during the pandemic. Um, I remember 
being on uh, actually coming to Facebook some days just to get a report from you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because at one point you were you were kind of embedded. Yeah. With, uh, one of the the Proud Boys was it group or one of those? Yeah, Boys I had groups or. Yeah, I'd I'd gone. Um, it was when the the protests first started with the mask issues. So when the pandemic really first went into effect in in March and everything started to shut down all across the country, there were definitely people who were standing their ground, quote unquote, about their freedoms and not wearing masks and not being vaxxed and what have you. But here in Sacramento, specifically because we're the capital of California, there was a larger focus of attention when it came to the protests and how big they got. So I decided that I would go as undercover as I could. I know no one can see me right now, but I have like a lot of face tattoos and stuff. So it can be a little bit difficult to go undercover. But um, I decided to go undercover for those protests about a month between April and May of 2020 to try to see what what these people were really saying, because I think, like I mentioned, we get the story, but we get very specific clips, snippets. And that's about it. And I wanted to really be able to see what these people were talking about. I really wanted to hear what these conversations were like while they were standing there with their flags and their American Eagles and their Proud Boy insignias and their, you know, fucking pro Donald Trump stuff. Because I think we we don't we don't really get to get that part of it. We only get to get this super sensationalized part of it. And so for a month, I went with like, you know, makeup covering my face, tattoos, and I was wearing red, white, and blue clothing and tied an American flag around my face as a mask. Because if I was just wearing a regular mask, I would have looked out of place since they were anti-mask protesters. Um, and I and I just kind of spent the month there, including talking to Proud Boys about asking if I had kids and wanting to know if they would want to be recruited. I was at one point kind of standing in the backstage area or the staging area, I guess um, you want to call it, of this huge protest that had happened in front of the state capitol where preachers were coming out and all these different government officials from random cities in California that, to be honest, I didn't know existed until they showed up. And it was just a trip. <laughs> it was a real trip. And then I had planned on doing that for as long as the protests were happening. But about a month into them, George Floyd was murdered. And so it shifted very quickly from anti-mask, fuck Governor Newsom, <laughs> we want our freedoms protests to a completely different kind of uprising. And so I immediately transitioned because before I was a journalist and even still as a journalist, I'm also an activist. And so I went from undercover to normal mode, I guess, if you want to say that, and spent the rest of the year on the front lines of the protests in Sacramento that were happening um, in regards to the George Floyd murders and Black Lives Matter and anti-Proud Boy, anti-Trump, anti-Nazi protests that were springing up all over the place. Yeah, you were in the midst of all of it. You were you went from like journalist live to like super activist live. Amazing because you were doing things like getting uh, supplies 
from people, uh, you know, from 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 all of from, from from all over Facebook for people who were um, at the protest. Things that I yeah. didn't even think of. What were some of the things you were looking for? You were like things to make to keep, help people keep safe, right? Um, yeah, um, we were we're basically, you know, it's it, it's a multitude of things that we ended up having we as a community, not we as like me and whoever was working, but we as a community and a collective across the country, if you were on the front lines last year or in general, there's a lot of equipment nowadays that you really have to have in order to keep yourself safe because, um, you know, just in, just to kind of give context, it's not just that you're standing and yelling at these police officers as they, as they form a wall anymore. There, there's a far more intense process when it comes down to it. And so you're getting shot with rubber bullets. Um, you're getting maced in the face. You're getting tear gassed. Um, unfortunately on more than one occasion, you're getting, uh, civilians who are running through protests with cars. And so, and then on top of that, we're in the middle of COVID. (laughs) So there's not just the protective gear that we had to have available. There's also the medically protective gear that you had to have available in order to be safe while you were on the front lines. Cause you're not just combating rubber bullets. You're also combating basically a plague. Um, and so what we, a lot of people were doing, like I said, across the country as a form of mutual aid was gathering everyday items that you can turn into, um, protective gear. So, you know, for shields, you cut a garbage can in half and you, throw some insulation in the back or you throw some moving blankets in and you resonate it and you add a, a strap to it and you've got a, a body shield that you can have for yourself. Um, if you are out there and you're about to get sprayed in the face with tear gas or you're about to get sprayed in the face with bear mace, which is one of the Proud Boys' favorite weapon of choice, you can't just put that water stuff doesn't work. You can't put water in your eyes and expect it to feel better. So you needed different things like baby wipes. You needed different things to be able to kind of keep yourself from having the extreme reactions that you would have to tear gas if you don't have anything protective. We were also collecting gas masks. I've got gas masks hanging all over my house now because we had so many from army surpluses or people would order them and send them in. Um, it was just, it's a, it's a lot, you know, there was a lot of things that you had to, to collect and be prepared for. And, uh, no matter how prepared you are to know what to do, no one's ever prepared enough to have that much stuff on hand. (laughs) So it takes a literal village of people coming together to make sure that the folks who are willing to stand on those front lines are protected as best as we can protect them against the state. Um, which is of course never going to be enough. (laughs) because we don't have tanks and uh, the National Guard um, on our side, but uh, you can still make a big difference. Um, And so, yeah, we, we as a community came together to, to do what we could, but I, over the years have built up a decent enough local, you know, support and following through my writing, through throwing events, through hip hop, through all the different communities that I've, I'm a part of. And so it was, you know, I don't want to say it was my duty, but I did feel like if I had the opportunity to utilize the people that followed me so fervently for my writing and my work, then that was what I was supposed to be doing on top of whatever else that I could. So yeah, that was definitely part of what we were doing was building shields, finding protective gear, taking donations so that people could go and buy, you know, their own protective stuff if we couldn't make it. Um, all of that was a part of, of 2020. Yeah, you were, the, you actually were um, an education um, 
source, I think, for me, because I there was a lot of stuff going on in the midst of these protests that, that as you said before, that was not getting reported that I did not mm. find out and uh, from anyone. But I found out from you first and was mm. able to take that information and go with it. Like, um, yeah. I think you were one of the first people to talk about trying to make things to escalate things more. Mm-hmm. And in, in once you said that, that's when, you know, I started seeing reports of people who would go to Black Lives Matter protest and, you know, start spray painting businesses mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And they're not a part of anything. So, right. Yeah. And, and just things like that. And talk about some of the uh, there were some other oddities that were going on. I don't uh, and that that only happened that the people only thought happened in California, but it was kind of happening in communities of color across the country. Mm. The intimidation. The, the- oh, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, there was, there was a lot of different and there, there still is uh, a lot of different intimidation tactics that were utilized by, I want, I don't want to say just right wing, but for the most part, right wing um, extremism, whether it's Proud Boys, uh, pro Trumpers, you know, whatever. Um, you know, part of it is that they would literally get into trucks and drive through neighborhoods that are known as black and brown neighborhoods, um, and 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 would just drive through and intimidate. They'd shoot fireworks off. Um, some would roll through and shoot guns in the air. Um, there was, they would have patrols basically, I guess would be the best way to say it, um, set up in different spaces where they knew the protests tend, tended to occur. And they would have those folks out there patrolling while the, um, the other side got prepared, taking pictures of us or looking at for license plates Obviously, doxing is a huge part of what was going on with that process. So a lot of activists last year were being attacked online because people were posting pictures, because people were showing their uh, license plates. There was also um, a situation here in Sacramento that I heard mimic pretty often across the country where these patrols were also going through neighborhoods and attacking um, property of people who lived in these neighborhoods. So there was one neighborhood that had, I want to say between 40 and 50 cars whose windows all got smashed on the same night. Um, and when there was, when we started looking through ring camera footage or when we started going out and talking to, um, people who had actually had their property damage during that process, a lot of them reported seeing the same car, the same people, the same model, the same make. And so, you know, it starts to become evident that it's not just enough for them anymore to to stand against us at a protest or to talk shit about someone's belief systems online or it's not enough for them anymore to just be racist. Now it's coming out in a different way than it used to when they were afraid to be racist. (laughs) And I think that that was a huge um, part of what happened in the last few years with Trump is that you lost the pretense to, to feel like you couldn't be racist in public or you couldn't act on those beliefs in a more tangible or violent way. Um, and that happened a lot with these intimidation tactics. I think the biggest thing for me, and I'll never be able, I don't want to say never, but at this point I can't prove that it was an intimidation tactic based on, you know, protests and things, but it seemed oddly and eerily timed. Um, across the country, we'd heard quite a few instances of there being Black men found hanging from trees 
in in different in different neighborhoods. Um, and here in Sacramento, um, there was an instance. Uh, a man named Willie Brown Jr. was found hanging from a basketball rim in the middle of a park in South Sacramento. And if you're unfamiliar with Sacramento, South Sacramento is one of the neighborhoods that is predominantly a black and brown neighborhood. And that was kind of the culmination of like, oh God, the worst is happening. You know, it's it's one thing to be confronted with them in a space where you, you know you're going to be confronted. You go to a protest, you know you're in for some shit. You know, you go with all of that protective gear because you know something is probably going to happen. But when you're just out and about living your life and these types of intimidation tactics are now being utilized in the darkness and in the spaces where we don't know it's coming, it's a whole different thing. And so that Willie Brown Jr. case for me specifically and just for the community and I think for Sacramento was a huge like it was just a huge moment of like, holy shit, like this is not going to get any better. And if it does get better, it's going to probably get worse before it does, you know? And um, even now with the fact that the protests aren't happening, because apparently, you know, since Biden got elected, I don't know, I guess everything somehow got better, whatever. But um, since protests aren't currently happening, there's still intimidation tactics happening in Sacramento. There's still proud boys and Nazis running patrols through our neighborhoods and putting up propaganda. And, you know, it, it, a lot of that stuff hasn't changed. It's just not being talked about anymore because I don't know, maybe the media doesn't find it as exciting when there's not an uprising behind it. So, yeah. Or they, it seems like they, they put it all on Trump. And so when Trump left office, Mm-hmm. just like when barack obama was elected racism was over i think i think it's that same type of you know naive type of journalism that was going on because i mean even after you were because with the the hanging black yeah. men i mean i started seeing stories um in oklahoma mm-hmm. uh in kansas michigan mm-hmm. which is a, which is just 10 minutes away from me it, it, like and, and then it started popping up all over yeah. And the intimidation, the like the fireworks out of nowhere, the middle of the night, like uh, sirens and horns and just weird mm-hmm. sounding like bullets or something or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was reported in like Gary, Indiana, which is, yeah. is a black city, you know, Gary. Yes. Yeah. City. So yeah, everything that you were seeing in Sacramento, I, I just really, it hit me that, you know, you're all the way over there. You're thousands mm-hmm. of miles away from me. But it's right. happening right here where I'm at. Right. And I'm hearing the stories and seeing the stories in my local community. And that was shocking yeah. um, for me. How did, how did you feel um, seeing all this and hearing all this? And then, but then ha- in the news, having these debates uh, and, and in the, like these public spaces, having these d- debates about property and protest and, you know, um, you can protest about damaging property or whatever the debate was, but, you know, they're, they're debating about damaging property and, and right. you're seeing the patrols and you're seeing all these other things happening. And um, how did you feel when you heard some of those little talks and debates going on? Um, people, like questioning if racism really was the issue. Right. Um you know, I've always been, and I think I have to for my own mental health, um, I've always been highly amused by those debates more than anything else. They uh, they don't anger me because I understand that the people that say these things 
have no fucking clue what they're talking about. And there is no point trying to argue someone who is that staunch in their ideas that property comes before people. Um, because that is, <laughs> that's capitalism in a nutshell. And it's something that's been ingrained into all of us for so long. It's part of the system of oppression that has kept us in the state that we're in as a country and not just as black folks, brown folks, as a whole, we're all fucked. People just don't want to act like, acknowledge that because we're all at different levels of being fucked and when you're at a certain level you're you're in that different version of the matrix that the rest of us aren't in um and it's harder to see and i think the idea of 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 <laughs> there shouldn't be property damage in uh in a protest is is funny because i don't think people understand what a protest is then um i don't think people understand what the fuck that means uh, i don't know if if they took a look at pictures in a history book and and saw someone marching and were like, well, that's a protest. Look at them. They're doing it really well. Like they're just, they're in lines, they're in formation. It looks lovely to me. Like that seems to be the idea that a lot of these folks have of protest. And it's funny that that's their idea because it's the most tame version of a protest that you can really come to. The point of a protest is to disrupt the status quo. The point of the protest is to disrupt the people who are normally not disrupted. Because guess what? The rest of us are disrupted every fucking day of our lives just by existing in a space where we are considered less than. And if you can't understand that the point of a protest is to make you feel how we feel every day, You'll never understand it, no matter how much I debate you and no matter how much I fight you. And if I'm going to spend that much energy fighting, there's way better places to fight, you know? And so I probably handle that stuff maybe better than some in the social media world because I just don't engage. I don't engage in the idea that that's even an argument that I would give my space to. Because if you think a protest is me standing outside holding a fucking candle and chanting well, then you just need to keep getting disrupted until you get it because you're not going to listen to my words anyway, you know? Um, and so that's kind of how I felt about that whole thing. And that's kind of how I feel about the idea that people think racism isn't the issue. Oh, then you're just not going to get it <laughs> because you're just never going to be able to put yourself in the place of somebody else because your version of what life is just isn't the version of what life is for the rest of us that are on the other side. And so I find him funny. <laughs> Personally, I think I think I, I was the person that's like, write their names down. Let's go find their house. You know what I mean? Like, let's mm -hmm. go disrupt them because they're obviously not going to get it any other way. Is that like a uh, an attitude that like people appreciate? Probably not, uh, especially from a journalist. I think that was that people think my objectivity or sub whatever doesn't exist that I can't be objective. And that's right. I can't uh, because it, you can't be objective in those kinds of situations. If you are objective and you pretend that there's no side, then you're just as much a part of the problem as everybody else. And you need to jump over on the side that I'm not. And so that's how I feel about that kind of shit is like, first off, fuck y'all. And then <laughs> second off, what's your address? Let's go, <laughs> let's go throw a block party on your street and at four in the morning uh, with some cumbia music because I want you to feel disrupted and I, I want you to feel what everybody else has to feel just by existing in the space that we exist. So yeah, that's how I feel about them. Creators in COVID is brought to you by Vero. Vero 
is a social network designed for connection, not engagement. I love it because it's a place for creators to be free from the algorithm and where episodes of this podcast will drop first 24 hours before anywhere else with a conversation about the episode to follow. That's right. Come to Vero and you get to have a conversation with me, Jenny Davis, and all of my friends and fans over there 24 hours before the rest of the world gets to see it. Download Vero for free from the App Store or Google Play and follow me, Jonita Davis, and share your thoughts and stories. And now, on to the show. No, I think that's, I think that's great. Um, I know my personal feelings about journalism is that, you know, everyone who, you know, they pretend to have this, you know, to be, they pretend to be objective. They pretend to have no bias. Well, mm-hmm. there's no such thing as writing without bias. And this is right. for me is. I'm writing professor, you know, there's no such thing. You, you have biases in there, um, no matter what. So um, pretending that it's not there is, as you say, part of our problem because we, it's, it's forced us to give a platform to ideas that should not have, should not have a platform. Um, So I think that's where you, um, and I loved that. And I had you answer these questions because I just love your, your social media post. (laughs) <laughs> um, about all this throughout the, your your posts got me through they were so just kind of like you know fuck it and zen and funny and you know and yeah yeah and there were a lot of you know let's go you know <laughs> let's go take right. their house um and I I really think that you helped a lot of people kind of put some pr- perspective onto it kind of like <coughs> we don't need their opinion if this is what mm-hmm. they're saying and Mm-mm. that takes some weight and stress off of some of these, some of what was going on, you know? Yeah. Um, it was kind of like, well, you know, maybe the problem is not, I need to be more objective. The problem is I need to whittle down my friends list. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I, um, that was, that was like one thing I think that you really, really gave your followers and in, in the writing community. Uh, the people who followed you um so what was it like for you as a writer there's like a lot lot going on you know mm-hmm. there's this the stress of all of, of all that and then you still had the pandemic to worry right. about you still had um you know your other hats being a mom being an right. artist you know and, and 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 having this global event happen right. um what was that like for you and and did it come to affect your writing at some point you know in the pandemic well the pandemic still going on at this point um (laughs) did it it come to affect your writing and how yeah boy this is like a therapy moment because I don't think I said this out loud but I think it came to affect my writing in the sense that I didn't want to write anymore and I don't I don't mean like I just stopped writing obviously not because like you said social media posts were happening and I was still keeping people updated on what was going on um but when it came to like having to write these kind of stories for a newspaper who was not as interested (laughs) in um in everything that I wanted to say uh it, it really changed a lot for me um when it came to being a journalist. Um, and I, and I think that's because it's probably easy for me to say that I haven't been a journalist this long, like I, or that long. I've only been uh, a writer in, in a professional sense for what, four years at that. 
And um, I started as a music journalist and I transitioned into working on other stuff um, because of my community work. But, you know, I think the idea that I couldn't say what needed to be said because it was quote unquote biased um, was an issue uh, for me. And I think that culminated recently in, you <laughs> know, in a, in a, in a way that has kind of had me questioning, do I even want to do this in the way that I've been doing it? anymore. Not to say that I don't want to write. I love writing. And I don't think that there's anything else that I would want to do for the rest of my life. There's other things I want to do, but there's nothing else I would want to do for the rest of my life besides writing. However, (laughs) I don't like being told what I can and cannot write um, or what does or does not make me biased. Um, Asking me to not be biased is asking me to not be human because everybody's biased. Everybody has a bias. We're taught bias. That's one of our biggest principles of the human condition is to think something is better than another thing because that's how we rank and value life, um, for better or worse. So yeah, I think it affected me that way. I The, the things that I've been writing lately um, have, number one, been few and far, but I think that's mostly just because of how this year has turned out. As opposed to not wanting to write in general, but the things that I have been writing have shifted away from talking about all the things that everybody else is talking about still, um, because it's just it's just recycling information, it's recycling news, and so I've kind of shifted again, and now I'm back to writing things that make me happy. You know, writing about the arts and the cultures and the way that the communities have rebounded since COVID and kind of doing what you're doing, where you find the people who have these amazing stories of the, the trials and tribulations of the past two years um, and how they've overcome or how they pushed through. That's kind of where I refocused, but even that is, it's still not hundred percent what I want to be doing. Um, so yeah, it's actually made me question the journalist thing a lot. And I think that's good mm-hmm. because I, I think I realized a lot last year that the writing that I do and the stories that I actually want to tell may not necessarily be the kind of stories that need to be in a newspaper or, you know, in a, in a local thing or whatever, like it it needs to go to the people that needs to hear it. And that might not be the case right now. Um, so yeah, I, I think I've reevaluated a lot because of 2020 and 2021 the clusterfucks of years that we've had, <laughs> um, yeah. it, which is weird because the dream was to be a journalist. And, but I guess just like with anybody else, once you get it, maybe it's not always everything you thought it was going to be, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you, you had, you, you were, you had it, you were there, you were embedded in the story, you, you stories you wrote, about those experiences and what was happening were they were riveting they were amazing um Thank you. they were they were really really great and um but i just and but the fact that you know you the dream as you said was to, to be a journalist and you got mm-hmm. that and now it's like hmm well maybe <laughs> right maybe not maybe not so much and and i think a big part of it too um was Once I took a step back from frontline stuff, which came about for a few different reasons, mostly because of the kids, you know, it started to become too much for them. And that was another thing that came out of 2020 was 
you know, I did become so ingrained and so active in that, that it was terrifying for the people that were close to me. Um, And that was, you know, another thing I had to kind of take into evaluation when it came to this year. But, you know, I think one of the things that I realized last year is I don't want to profit off pain. And I feel like even if I'm not telling the story the same way other people are telling it, you know, even if I'm not just giving you the who, what, when, where, and why that everybody else is giving you, um, there's just, there was so much pain in everything that was written last year. You couldn't help it, of course, but I don't know if that's what I want to make my money off of. If I am going to put things out into the world, I, I don't want it to be pain. You know, I don't want it to to be someone's pain relived in a way to make people aware that pain exists. Like, how do you not know it exists already? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I go back to, like, if you don't know already, what the fuck am I talking to you for? You're wasting my energy. You're wasting my time. And that's a lot of the people that I'm talking to with the places that I write for. You're wasting my fucking time. Um, and so I don't want to do that anymore. Um, and that's changed a lot of what I've written now. And it's changed a lot of the way that I've looked at things um, this past year, which is probably why I haven't been writing as much because those are the stories that people want. And I don't want that anymore for for me. I don't want that for the people that I tell the stories of. I don't want it to be pain that they have to relive over and over again every time someone Googles a situation and they the article comes up, you know? It's just... It's a weird, it's a weird system. <laughs> and uh, yeah. as anti-system as I am, being a journalist is part of the system. Being a traditional journalist is part of the system, I should say. And writing for the places that I was writing for are very traditional journalist places. Um, and it just wasn't, it wasn't what it needed to be. So yeah, I think 2020 was a really eye-opening for me. And I appreciated 2020. I actually appreciated the fuck out of 2020 compared to 2021. Like if I could have the mental state that I had in 2020 now, I'd be much better. <laughs> like I was different last year than I am this year. What, um, what was the difference? What, what were the, between the two You know, the difference last year is I was angry. The difference this year is I'm sad and I'd much rather be angry. <laughs> like it's far more productive for me. Um but again, that's not healthy. You know what I mean? Like neither one of these uh, things, the the existences, pain and anger, sadness, whatever, none of those are healthy to live in and exist in an entire space. Um, but for my own personal self and for my own sanity, I can be angry a lot better than I can be sad. And uh, last year was anger and rage and frustration. And the hurt that was there wasn't the hurt of aching like loss. It was the hurt of of just watching your humanity be denied. And that's a different kind of hurt that you can turn into something. 2021 has just been a year where it's just sad. Like there's just been so much in my own space that's been happening, whether it's been people I've lost or, well, really people I've lost. Like there's been so much loss that, you know, I don't know how to be productive in that. I'm, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be, <laughs> I'd rather be pissed right now. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's kind of the difference for me is last year I could, I could function. People kept asking me, why are you not breaking down? Like multiple people asked me that question last year. How have you not had a mental breakdown yet? Cause everyone was kind of going through it around me and it just wasn't, that's just not how I function. But this year was completely different. This year I had a mental breakdown and, <laughs> or at least my own version of a mental breakdown. Um, 
and it's uh it's been different but both have been eye-opening both years have been eye-opening and i look forward to the end results of whatever came out of this last two years you know the lessons and the the progress that comes from it um silver linings and all that bullshit (laughs) but you know and that's that's still happening as we speak we don't have an answer to what's going to come out of it yet for Liz right no not at all I barely came I mean I think I think if you to try to talk to me if you try to do this interview with me in the last three months you wouldn't have gotten coherent answers out of me or it would have been me crying at you for like three or four hours or something like that. You know what I mean? Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's, I'm at the stage now where I just know what it feels like to be live again. And that's just happening. Like that's just barely cracking the surface of me starting to feel like myself. Um, so I have no idea what the fuck is going to come out of this year, but I welcome it. I'm excited for it. I have hope for it. And I, I, I feel like if I handled this year and I handled last year, I, I can handle everything else. You know, I love that. I love that. So what is one thing that you could, you would tell, say, you know, like my, my Quinn is five. Um, yeah. She's going to be studying this pandemic in high school um, mm-hmm. and in college, you know, as mm-hmm. part of history. What is, what is one thing that you would like for her to know from your world, being a journalist throughout this thing, an activist mm-hmm. and, you know, having this transformative moment what is one thing you would you want her to know about this moment for you? Um, well, number one, Quinn, uh, when you're reading this, reading about this in high school, uh, whatever the book says is probably not true all the way. So keep that in mind. Um, a lot of it gets left out. Um, but number two, one thing I would want whoever is is learning about this <laughs> this historic year or two that we just had as a nation and as a globe um, is don't let the pain trick you into thinking that something beautiful didn't come out of whatever went on. Um, because as much anger and hurt and sadness uh, and rage and every other emotion that you can think of <laughs> that is hard to function with, all those emotions happened last year. But the beautiful shit that came out of it, the stuff that they don't really talk about, they don't want to focus on, um, that stuff means more than, than, the, than the hurt. We can, we can get through hurt. We can survive hurt. We can survive anger. We survived hundreds and hundreds of years of colonization thus far and will continue to push forward. But what I saw last year and this year was communities coming together to take care of their people in a way that I collectively haven't seen happen. And it happened because of that anger and that hurt and that fear, because you realize all we have is each other. And that's a lesson that I think is really easy to forget sometimes because they try very hard to make sure we forget sometimes, but we have each other's backs. We have the ability to take care of our own people. And we as communities across this country and across the globe did exactly that. And did it come out perfect? Of course not. Did we come out smelling like roses and everything was beautiful? Not anywhere close to it yet. But if we made it through this year and we made it through last year, I can't even imagine what we as people can do for the years coming because it is going to get harder for our people, for black folks, for brown folks, for folks in marginalized communities all across 
the world, it will start to get more difficult. And through that, we will start to become even stronger together. And that's when the possibilities become endless. So I think that's my biggest thing that I I don't want people to forget or to get whitewashed out. Um, It wasn't just pain. Pain was the catalyst. But there was some beautiful, beautiful shit that came out of 2020 and 2021. And if we can do that, we can pretty much do anything. And that's, I think, what I would want folks to know. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. (laughs) Thanks. Um, I think that's that's a good end note right there. Um, <laughs> I mean, was there anything else you would like to add to this um this talk? Um, anything we didn't touch on that you would like to kind of? Um, I think the only other thing I would want to say as part of the process of these last couple of years that I've personally learned, and I think maybe other people can resonate with, or maybe they need to hear because they're not sure about um, is we collectively took a lot of loss and grief in all its forms can kill us if we let it. Right. Uh, And I realized that firsthand (laughs) this year more than I've ever realized it in my life. And so I, something that I was thinking about yesterday that was said to me and I've been really thinking about since then is the amount of loss can cripple us because we're so ill-prepared for it. We're just not never ready for that kind of, of, of head on loss. So often I lost, I've lost 10 people this year already. Um, and, and not just like peripheral people, but people that like I cared about people that I loved people that have affected my life in huge ways and their loss is hugely felt. Um, and it can consume you, but I was reminded that the way that we, um, as 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 communities with this ancestral knowledge of of celebrating those that we've lost, we kind of forget that sometimes because the colonized version of grief is to be sad and to lean into the pain and to mourn and to do all of this. And I don't want us to mourn the loss of whatever we feel like we lost in 2020 and 2021. I want us to celebrate the fact that not only did we make it, but even through all of the loss, we can celebrate every single person that went along that journey with us in whatever way that they went along with us. And so don't let people steal your joy, I guess. Or don't let grief steal it. Don't let the idea that you have to be sad because somebody is gone or because something has changed. Like, just don't let your joy go away. Like, hold on to it as best you can in whatever way you can, um, even in the smallest moments, because radical joy is one of the biggest acts of protest that we can have in this world. If they can't take away our happiness, then they're losing without us doing anything. So just, you know, I guess I want to just like remind folks, like find it every so often. If you feel like you lost it, just go look for the joy. And, um, and it, it makes a big difference in how you can get through years that look like this. I think that's it. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, because it's very true. Um, we do come from communities that, you know, traditionally celebrated loss. Mm-hmm. I mean, they celebrated those, uh, the lives of people. I mean, right. and, and now in the Black community, a funeral is called a home, a home going, you know, right. or, you know, um, and, and so, you know, we, we're like, okay, they're going home. So we're, you know, giving them this going away party. And, right. um, 
and I know um, I was just watching with the kids, uh, Maya and the three <laughs> on Netflix <laughs> that are talking about, you know, the way that um, um, Latin cultures celebrate the dead and, and, the, and so not the dead, but the lives of the people who, you know, who um, are dead now um, and mm. those people, how those people never are truly gone um, right. and how, and, and I, so that's so yeah we need to I think we need to go back to that and I think we did go back to that yeah yeah I I think I think we're definitely starting to go back to it I think I think I forgot this this past year because it was so so many and so often I think Mm -hmm. I forgot that you know and then I remembered like okay yeah yeah cool I'm a journalist whatever but storytelling is something that you don't have to have a degree for. You don't have to have fucking, you know, grammatical considerations and you don't have to do any of that. But telling the stories of the people that are no longer with us is one of the most important things that anybody can do because that's how we celebrate their lives. We don't forget them. We honor them. We love them. And we keep them here with us as much as we can in spirit and in heart. And that's kind of what I was like remembering is like, oh shit, like, being a storyteller is so much more important than being a journalist, you know? And I think we've even had this conversation before. Um, and so I, I, yeah, just 2020 and 2021 find the joy and just, it's just such a, it's just such a weird year that I think that's all we can really do anymore mm-hmm. is find the joy and don't let them trick us into thinking that it wasn't there because mm-hmm. they recycle our pain for their profit, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love all that. Um, <laughs> and, and and yes, the pain for the pain for profit. I, I know when they when I get to the, the episode where I tell my story, that's one big part of it. Is um, there's so many calls for for black black women to talk about mm-hmm. you know, how does it feel to have a son at this time? And my son turned eighteen. Turned eighteen at um in 2021 you know and um and, and during 2020 it's the fact that i was thinking about the fact that he is going to be 18 years old and right. and you know this is happening this is coming and i've got editors who turned down stories uh, that i was talking, where i was talking about you know black joy and you know my kids stuff that they were they were joyful things they were doing during the pandemic and no they wanted to talk about how did i feel about my son turning 18 in this pandemic with george floyd and everything happening and i'm like i i that's something i i did i wanted to to distract from yeah the stories i wanted to write to distract from that they were not taking right they want yeah. that pain um, they do they want the pain because the pain translates to fear and the fear keeps you complacent mm-hmm. and it keeps you from speaking out or speaking up or standing mm-hmm. on the front line it keeps you worried about your day-to-day existence and that's the state that they want us to be in in a constant on a constant basis and that's why i think it's so important to just refuse to let them do that. And for some, it's easier than others. My version of marginalization is nowhere near the same as other people's versions of marginalizations. I don't go through the same thing that other people go through. I'm Mexican, but there's still (laughs) so much more credence given to my skin color than there is to others. There's so much more credence given to my version of who I am than there are to others. And so while I understand that I can't tell anybody to not fear or to not worry, because how do you not? Um, That's what they want. And so 
as much as you can and as much as you have the ability to find the things besides the pain, find the stories that bring you joy, find the people that uplift your spirit, find the community that takes care of their own. And that is the shit that keeps you sane when their boots are on your fucking neck, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so, yeah, I just, I'm kind of grateful for 2020. I'm a little less grateful for 2021. <laughs> um, but that's just, again, just losing so many folks, um, was, was just personally hard, but yeah, I think, uh, I think if you're listening to this right now, whenever you happen to listen to it, you made it. So fucking find joy in that because a lot of folks didn't, and we have to carry that torch since they couldn't. You've been listening to the Creators and COVID podcast. Many thanks to Vero for the partnership in this podcast, to Liv Monahan for her story. Many thanks to Vero for their partnership in this podcast, to Liv Monahan for sharing her story, and to you for spending your time with us. Come back next week for a new story that you can hear first on the Vero app, where we drop it and discuss 24 hours before the episode premieres on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>